This is episode 539 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. You know, one unappreciated gift given the church is the fact that we have those who are older and wiser than we are to help guide our way in this life with Christ. After all, it's no merit for a son to make the same mistakes his father did. Each generation must learn how to make their own way in this fallen world, but only a fool fails to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before. So today we're going to glean some insight into the full, abundant life with Christ, this higher Christian life, as we call it, from a man who is speaking to us from a position of victory. And that man's name is Oswald Chambers. You may recognize his name from the classic devotional, My Upmost for His Highest, that was compiled from his teachings in 1929 by his wife, Biddy. Oswald Chambers, who died in 1917 at the age of 43, lived what he speaks about and can show us by experience how to achieve the spiritual victory that only comes from complete, absolute surrender. Victory from surrender. Confusing, I know. But let's look at a few of Oswald's statements and try to learn from him what we need to know regarding faith and surrender and victory as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, many of us, uh, when we grew up, our parents did not go to college, and so they basically decided, my parents did, that it was very important that their kids went to college. Because if you went to college, at least when I was young in the 70s and 80s, when you went to college, it was almost a guarantee of a better life. But college teaches you how to be an employee. College teaches you how to get a job and work for somebody else. The uh, other avenue of that was to learn a trade, like a plumber or a carpenter or a builder or a mechanic or something of that nature. And in those situations, they had something called mentorships, their internships, where a plumber would be a, you know, an apprentice, and then he would have to work for so many years under the authority of a licensed plumber, and then he would become a journeyman or not really sure how the designation goes. But you would have to learn by doing. You'd have to learn by seeing. You would have to find somebody who was further along than you were and learn from them. The Bible talks about that same kind of discipleship motif. It talks about mentoring, where we look at someone who has achieved what we're hoping to achieve, who has experienced and persevered in trials and tribulations that we can't even imagine, who has a deeper spiritual life than we have, and we cling to them and let them show us how it's done. You know, the video I just showed you, uh, Robertson McQuilkin stands up there and says, I, I didn't get it until I got to 18. And 18 years old, it was so simple. It was yield and trust. My mother said, you have it in your two hands, yield and trust. Okay, well, I'm very frustrated. I know that's the theological answer. That's the doctrinal answer. That's the global answer. How do you yield? How do you trust? How is that fleshed out in real life? If I could, I would hang with Robertson and say, I'd show me. I mean, tell me exactly. I mean, what's your thought process during the day? A certain situation comes up in my life. I pick up the phone and I call you. Show me how to yield. Show me how to trust. You, you are achieving this life. I'm striving for this life. Show me how it's done. 
the Apostle Paul was laying out that kind of mentorship, learning from someone else motif when he was writing his last letter to Timothy. And here's what he said. He says, you therefore, my son, I have taught you as my son, my spiritual son. I need you to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to do. I want all the things that you've heard from me, all the things that I have firsthand taught you in our mentorship, in our discipleship kind of program, in our internship where you were doing what I was doing, I want you to commit these to other people, to faithful men. What I taught you, and now I'm gone, I want you to commit those things to faithful men for the purpose that they just won't believe it themselves and hold on to it, but they'll be able to teach others also. And then the faithful men will become the the oldest generation, and they'll teach the next generation and the next generation. There's this mentorship, internship, learning from others we find all through Scripture. I love this one since I'm gray-headed. Psalm 78, 18. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me. I won't, but why are you even asking me that? Because my job's not done. Don't forsake me until. Until what? Until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone, even beyond this generation, who is to come. I want to learn from someone in the past to be able to go at least as far as they've gone with the Lord and then move into uncharted territories so my son and my grandkids and my great-grandkids and my friends and neighbors can see what I have done or what God has done through me and move even further. Titus talks about this when he lays out the responsibility of men and women talks about men first, and then he talks about older women. And he says, the older women, likewise, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Why? Because the younger women are watching you, because they're going to learn from you, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. You have done it, And now we want you to be an example for the young ones who are struggling in that relationship the same way you were, but you were victorious. Mentorship. Just like Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to teach us and bring to remembrance to us everything Jesus said. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what will he do? He will teach you all things, all things I've told you, and bring to remembrance all the things that I said to you. I said to you. So who in the world are mentors? Who in the world are people that we look up to? Who are the people that have, um, that have lasted or, or succeeded in the test of time? No scandals, no bad doctrine, no hidden sins that seem to plague our leaders today in the church today. Uh, Who are these people? I have some in my own life, and you know who they are. Some of my spiritual heroes. heroes. George Mueller. Want to learn about faith? I read his writings. Andrew Murray, Oswald Chambers, D.L. Moody, Spurgeon. You know, people, Spurgeon died when he was 57 years old and has this volume of, of sermons that it would take a lifetime to literally get through. 
you know, there are, there are people in my life that uh, have really meant a lot to me. One of them is Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers was a man that we should all know because of this book that he did not write, but it's a book of his writings called My Utmost for His Highest. It's a devotional book that every year I go through it, and every year for 20-something years, on January 5th, I read the same January 5th passage, and it speaks to me differently. This is a man who died when he was 43 years old and has a wealth of spiritual intimacy in his life that um, I have a hard time even grasping in my mind how deep he must be in his relationship with the Lord. I want to know why. I want to know how. I want to be mentored by him. What can we learn about the spiritual life from Oswald Chambers? He was born in July 24th of 1874 in Aberdeen, Scotland. That's on the coast. It's on the east side of, uh, of Scotland. He was the eighth of nine children. His father was a pastor of a very small church in Aberdeen when he was uh, just around 10 or 11 years old, the family moved from Aberdeen and they traveled to uh, London at that time. And while they were in London, when he was 15 years old, his father decided he wanted to go to hear Spurgeon preach. And so he took young Oswald with him and they went to hear the message. And on the way home, Oswald Chambers told his father this. He said, if they would have asked for an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ, I was willing to do it today. And his father said, you don't have to go to hear Spurgeon to do that. We can do that right now. So they pulled up under a tree and they sat down together and his father explained to him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Oswald Chambers at the age of 15 became a Christian, convicted by the preaching of Spurgeon and led to Christ by his own father. Oswald died in uh, 1917 in Cairo, Egypt. And again, he was 43 years old. And when I tell you how he passed away, you'll be able to see on his face right now, even as a relatively young man, um, some of the um, effects of the illness that he had that led to what many believe is his premature death. Oswald Chambers had a quote, had many of them, <clears throat> but this is one of them at the turning point of his life. And it simply says this, it takes me a long time, long while to realize that God has no respect for anything I bring to him. What I offer him means nothing. All he wants from me is unconditional surrender, which was the hallmark of his life. The only thing God wants from me is me. That's all. Doesn't care about my money, doesn't care about my home, doesn't care about my time doesn't care about all those things that I can tie to him or dole out to him or give to him when it feels comfortable for me. What he desires is me, because when he has me, he has all of that. And Oswald struggled with what it means to live totally surrendered to him, as he says over and over again in My Utmost for His Highest, to be broken bread and poured out wine. Do you remember that? broken bread and poured out wine. After Oswald got saved, he uh, realized that he had a, a great talent and affinity for art, and he decided that probably the best thing that he could do is serve God through the arts. In other words, he would go to college, 
He would uh, learn uh, skills in art. He would paint pictures for the Lord's glory. This happens to be a uh, charcoal drawing he made of Beethoven. You can see the man was quite talented in his art. So he enrolled at uh, what is now the Royal Institute of Art. And after that, he studied for two years. And after that, he transferred to the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and while he was in Edinburgh, he went to church as a believer. And he went to the uh, Free St. George Church and was ministered to by this man. We don't even know anything about this guy. This guy basically is just a pastor who pastored a small church and had a great influence on this young man that later did wonderful things, or the Lord used him to do wonderful things for himself. But this man had a profound impact on his life. And during that time, in 1897, at the age of 22, he realized that God no longer wants him to serve him in the arts, but instead is calling him into the ministry. I know we don't talk about that much in our church because um, you don't want to encourage someone in the flesh to do something maybe God has not called them. When I realized that God had called me into the ministry, I went for counsel to a pastor I respected, and I asked him, and I said, how do you know if God is calling you into the ministry? And here was his answer. He says, if you can be happy in anything else in life, God has not called you into the ministry. But if the only thing that brings you joy is serving him, that's confirmation of his call. And so God called Oswell into the ministry. He decided to leave before graduating the University of Edinburgh. Some of his friends thought it was wise. Some of his friends thought it was crazy. He enrolled with 29 other students at a Bible college named Dunoon College in the city of Dunoon, Scotland, which was on the west coast of the uh, town. It was run by a man named uh, Reverend Duncan McGregor. And this was the kind of school where it was all hands-on. Duncan had a rather large house. All 30 students lived in the house. They ate together with his family. He actually taught them. It was, um, you know, it wasn't like going to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This was hands-on where you can see how a, a pastor and a Christian treats his wife and his children. It was a profound experience for um, Oswald Chambers, and he actually became, uh, the Duncan McGregor became a mentor to him. This, if you can barely see it, this is Oswald Chambers here. During this time in Dunoon College, Oswald Chambers heard a message by F.B. Meyer, who was a friend of uh, D.L. Moody, part of the Keswick movement, talking about this higher Christian life, talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, talking about the fact that it is true to live a life of more abundance than maybe we're experiencing right now, because that's the, the model that Jesus laid out there. And so he struggled for almost four years wanting to surrender his life to the Lord and not knowing how. I don't know what to do. It was kind of like the Apostle Paul. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man that I am. He literally called these four years, not because of the schooling, but because of the spiritual turmoil going inside of him, four years of hell on earth. His testimony says that if it wasn't for the grace of God and the love of his friends, he would have literally checked himself into an asylum. 
because it was this goal, this desire, this intimacy with the Lord, this victory over sin, this power of the Holy Spirit moving in his life that was promised to him that he wanted so bad and for some reason felt the overwhelming inability to be able to live that victorious life. It all ended for him when he embraced his terminology, something he called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where he accepted Christ on his word and not on what he thought it, it was all about. The verse that led him to that, of course, is Luke chapter 11, verse 13. I'll just read it to you. It says, if you then being evil, you know how the rest of this goes, right? Know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, is that the Holy Spirit of salvation? Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit comes at salvation, but that's not a salvation verse. That seems like that's a, that's a present, a gift, a, something that comes to those people who are already his child. And he struggled with that for a long time. This young man in absolute turmoil. Oswald Chambers' testimony says that after he had that resolve in his heart that between that time and the time of this testimony I'm going to read to you that was given in May of 1906, that he had literally heaven on earth versus hell on earth. If you trust Oswald Chambers, these are his words, his testimony about his life. Let me read this to you. It says, after I was born again as a lad, I enjoyed the presence of Jesus Christ wonderfully. But years passed before I gave myself up thoroughly to his work. I was in Danoon College as a tutor of philosophy when Dr. F.B. Meyer, he was a contemporary and lifelong friend of D.L. Moody, and he was one of the founders of the Keswick movement and the Welch revival, came and spoke about the Holy Spirit. I was determined to have all that was going, and I went into my room and asked God simply and definitely for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever that meant. From that day on, for four years, nothing but an overwhelming, nothing but the overwhelming grace of God and the kindness of friends kept me out of an asylum. God used me during those years for the conversion of souls, but I had no conscious communion with Him. Sound familiar? The Bible was the dullest, most uninterested book in existence. And the sense of depravity and vileness and bad motives of my nature was terrific. Well, we don't think the Bible is the most boring book ever, but we hardly ever read it. I see now that God was taking me by the, by the light of the Holy Spirit and His Word through every ramification of my being. The last three months of those years, things reached a climax. I was getting very desperate. I knew no one had what I wanted. In fact, I didn't, even, I didn't even know what I wanted, but I knew that if what I had was all the Christianity there was, the thing was a fraud. Then Luke eleven thirteen got hold of me. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But how could I with my bad motives possibly ask for the Holy Spirit? Then it was borne in upon me that I had to claim the gift from God on the authority of Jesus Christ and testify as having done so, just like salvation. But the thought came, if you claim the gift of the Holy Spirit on the word of Jesus Christ and testify to it, God will make it known to those you know 
the best how bad you are in heart, and I was not willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. But those of you who know the experience know very well how God brings one to the point of utter despair and how I got to the place where I did not care whether everyone knew how bad I was. I cared for nothing on earth save to get out of my present condition. At a little meeting held during a mission in Danoon, a well-known lady was asked to take the after-meeting. What they would have is like an evangelistic meeting, and then they would break up in small groups afterwards and kind of deal with some of the questions. So that's what they're talking about in the after-meeting. She did not speak, but set us to prayer and then sang, Touch me again, Lord. I felt nothing, but I knew emphatically my time had come, and I rose to my feet. I had no vision of God, only a sheer dogged determination to take God at his word and to prove this thing for myself, and I stood up and said so. That was bad enough, but what followed was ten times worse. After I sat down, the lady worker who knew me well said, That was very good of our brother. He has spoken like this as an example to the rest of you. I got up again and said, I got up for no one's sake. I got up for my own sake. Either Christianity is a downright fraud or I have got not got hold of the right end of the stick. I love that phrase. And then and there I claimed the gift of the Holy Spirit and dogged commitment on Luke eleven thirteen. I had no vision of heaven or of angels. I had nothing. I was as dry and empty as ever, no witness of the Holy Spirit. Then I was asked to speak in a meeting, and 40 souls came out to the front to seek salvation. Did I praise God? No, I was terrified and left him to the workers and went to Mr. McGregor and told him what happened. And he said, do you remember claiming the Holy Spirit as a gift on the word of Jesus and that he said, you shall receive power? This is the power from on high. And like a flash, something happened inside of me. And I saw that I had been wanting power on my own hand or in my own hand, so to speak, that I might say, look what I have been putting my all on the altar. In the four previous years that had been hell on earth, these five years have truly been heaven on earth. Glory be to God. The last aching abyss of the human heart is filled to overflowing with the love of Jesus. Love is the beginning, love is the middle, and love is the end. After he comes in, all you see is Jesus only, Jesus ever. When you know what God has done for you, the power and the tyranny of sin is gone and the radiant, unspeakable emancipation of the indwelling Christ has come. And when you see men and women who should be princes and princesses with God bound up by the shows of things, oh, you begin to understand what the apostle meant when he said he wanted himself accursed for Christ so that men might be saved. So what happened? Spent nine years in Danoon College. He uh, went from a student to a teacher and an instructor and a tutor there. And after that, he traveled to the United States. He spent some time speaking at God's Bible College in Cincinnati and a few other places. He had this desire in his heart to start a Christian school or a training institute so he could instill in others what he had experienced what uh, McGregor had shown him. So he traveled to Japan to look at the Tokyo Bible College, and he became then for a, a little while a traveling teacher and ambassador for the Pentecostal League of Prayer. In 1908, on a ship headed uh, for the United States, he met a woman named Gertrude Hobbs. Don't you love that name? Gertrude Hobbs. And two years later, that were, they were married. 
She was a master court stenographer. It is shocking the way God orchestrated all of this. She could take shorthand up to 250 words a minute, which is unbelievably phenomenal. She married Oswald Chambers. He referred to her as her, as his beloved disciple or BD for short. And that became her nickname. For the rest of her life, she was known to those who love her as Biddy. They spent a four-month honeymoon in the United States, not living in some great honeymoon suite at the beach, but actually teaching at various holiness camps. This is Oswald Chambers and his wife, Biddy. He had dreamed for years about opening a Bible college. So in 1911, he founded the Bible Training College in London. He was able to lease a 19-room a house in London. If you look at it today, it's a massive place. He had no money, no way to do this. The YMCA uh, at that time, by the way, the YMCA back then was what the YMCA started out being, a uh, evangelistic Christian ministry. It wasn't a place where you do sports and work out and all that kind of stuff like it is now. Just like the Salvation Army was not a place that you go and buy cheap used things like it is today. Um, so the Salvation Army basically uh, helped him fund this. He moved in with 25 students. The, uh, and and two, two years later in 1913, they had a daughter named Kathleen. This is their daughter, Kathleen. I looked at an interview in 1986, Kathleen talking about her father. And it was so sad because she says, I know all about my father, but I have no memory of him at all. She, he died when she was four years old. Next year, 1914, everything changed. World War I hit. Oswald, uh, England entered the war, and Oswald Chambers struggled with what he should do. So he left the students that he had there under capable leadership of somebody else. And in 1915, he traveled to Egypt with the YMCA as a chaplain for the troops that are stationed there. A few months later, his wife and daughter joined him in Cairo. Their ministry was basically hospitality. They would feed them. Sometimes during the day on Sundays, they would serve tea to 700 soldiers at that time. He would preach to them at night. He would preach to them during the day. He, hold, uh, he held uh, camp meetings and evangelistic crusades. Even when he was at school, he taught during the day and taught during the night. And all the time, Biddy would be taking shorthand notes of everything that he said. In uh, 1917, <clears throat> two years later, Oswald Chambers began to feel ill. He um, didn't know what the problem was, but he began declining in health. Some of the uh, doctors and some of his friends encouraged him to go, uh, go to the doctor and find out what was wrong. He didn't want to do that because they were in the middle of a major battle going on. There was a lot of beds needed for the troops, and so he waited until it was too late. When he was finally convinced that uh, he needed medical help. He went, but he found that his appendix had already burst. They performed emergency surgery on him. He rallied that night and died the next morning at the age of 43 from complications of surgery. Well, what happens now? There are thousands, thousands of soldiers who knew who he was, who were encouraged by his message, who wanted to know more about this life he talked about in Christ. So a couple of weeks later, the Biddy decided at the urging of some of the soldiers that she would take one of his sermons that she had dictated or she had written down in shorthand, and she basically translated that 
and sent it out to many of the soldiers. And all of a sudden it became very popular. They asked for more. And the next month she sent out another one. And the next month she sent out another one. It became too much for her to handle. Um, the YMCA took over pretty much. They were publishing 10,000 of his messages uh, each month that she would dictate into shorthand. And so what she did is spent the rest of her life basically taking all his messages that she had on shorthand, transcribing those down, taking nuggets of truth in those, and in 1927 compiled them in a single book called My Utmost for His Highest. And this book has been in print ever since. He didn't write this. <clears throat> he spoke this. And it's a classic picture, this and his sermons, of the faith it takes to live this overcoming life like Oswald Chambers had from a mentor who has been there. So here's what I want to do in the time we have left. I'm just going to share with you some quotes from Oswald Chambers. These are quotes about faith, quotes about our relationship with him. If he was standing in front of you and we asked that simple question, I know what I should do. I just don't know how to do it. Robertson McQuilkin, yield and trust. <clears throat> okay, I know I'm supposed to trust you with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding and in all my ways acknowledge you. How? And yield, I don't know what that means. I wonder, what, how, do I, how do I let you make all the decisions in my life? I mean, how does that even happen, especially to many of us who maybe have never heard God before? Because it's not something that Churches talk about that today. How is God supposed to direct my path if I don't even know his voice? So here's what Oswald Chambers would tell you about faith, what it means to have overcoming faith, and what it means to have that faith to the point that it would help our spiritual life grow to the point where we would experience this higher Christian life. Got about 12 quotes here. Let me just give you these and then we'll close. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yes, I got that. That's the Bible definition. But how do I flesh that out in my life? Well, it's simply this, Oswald would say. Faith is deliberate, something you think about beforehand, confidence in the character of God, not just his hand, but his face, whose ways you cannot understand at the time. We've been talking about this. Not faith in what God will do, with faith in who God is. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known unto God, and then he'll do exactly what you want. No, he never promises that. He promises us his character. And then the peace of God, his character, his person, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Faith never knows where it is being led. Think of Abraham going from Earl of the Chaldees to I'll tell you when you get there. But it loves the one who is leading. I heard this a long time ago, and I've tried to incorporate it into my life. You know, I don't have to know what happens tomorrow because I know Christ knows what's happening tomorrow. And if I am in him and he knows tomorrow, that should be enough. Should be enough. Get into the habit of saying, speak, Lord, and life will become a romance, a romance. 
How often do we do that? Speak, Lord. I need to hear your voice, Lord. I need to experience your presence, Lord. Not, I think I know what I'm going to do. You just bless what I'm going to do and things will be okay. Faith is not intelligent understanding. Faith is deliberate commitment to a person, not a outcome, but a person where I see no way. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what happens tomorrow because I am in his hands. Okay, Oswald, what else? Since we live in this idea of seeing is believing. Here's what he said. Seeing is never believing. As we interpret what we see in the light of what we believe. Faith is confidence in God before you see God emerging. Therefore, the nature of faith is that it must be tried. It must be tested. I handed out a um, sheet of paper to you last week with a bunch of verses on faith. And I asked you this week to read those and line your life up with those and, and trust his word in some areas of your life and see if God would not prove himself faithful in that. When I see Jesus Christ, I simply want to be what he wants me to be. I'm always amazed that we teach our children, especially those like me that homeschool, we teach our children how to make their way into the world. We want to teach them everything the world says we need to. We want to teach them history and, and English and mathematics and all the kind of stuff that, that's important. One thing we never, hardly ever teach them is how to hear from God, how to experience God, how to have that kind of life with God, how to emulate God. Oh, we, we do that at church. That's not for homeschool. Although we do have a Bible curriculum in homeschool. No, no, we, we work so hard to make our way in this world not realizing that if we make our way in God's world, he promises to take care of every one of our needs. The life of faith is not a life of mounting up with wings, but of walking and not fainting. Remember that verse? Walking and not fainting. Sin is not wrongdoing. Sin is wrong being. It is a deliberate and emphatic independence from God. Oswald Chambers would say that he achieved the life in which he lives, that we still are encouraged by his writings, by not being independent, but being conformed to the image of Christ. Any more, Oswald? Yeah. Here's what you need to do when you wake up in the morning. Get in the habit of dealing with God about everything everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Unless in the first waking moment of the day, you learn to fling the door wide back and let God in. You will work on a wrong level all day. But swing the door wide open and pray to your Father in secret, and every public thing will be stamped with the presence of God. Everything you do will be stamped with His approval. How often do we do that? If I ask a hundred Christians about their devotional life, most people would say this, well, I try to get up in the morning, spend a little time with God, but sometimes if I'm running late or I stayed up too, too, 
uh, late the night before, I slight God and maybe I'll catch him at the end of my day, not giving the best of my day. I try to spend like 15 minutes with him because I'm just too busy. There's too many things I have to do. Oswald Chambers says, that's a recipe for failure. And if that's what we're doing, and this is who we are, seems like we may want to try something different. Keep your life in constant contact with God. Constant in every area of your life. Why? So that his surpassing power may break out on the right and on the left. Always be in a state of expectancy to see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. Well, uh, doctor said there's nothing else to do but just pray. So I guess we might as well pray or put him first and just watch what he does. Here's one that really convicted me since I struggle with self-interest and pride. Here's what he said. If my ruling disposition is self-interest, if it's about me, how it's going to affect me, then I perceive everything that happens to me is always for or against me, for or against my self-interest, for or against how it affects me. If, on the other hand, my ruling disposition is obedience to God, I perceive him to be at work for my perfecting in everything that happens to me. Doesn't matter what happens to me because God is turning me into what he wants me to be. But if my focus is on me, then that's good or that's bad or that's profitable or that's negative, or I want to make sure that it doesn't happen again. See the difference? And it's just a way of viewing God that Oswald Chambers lived out. Unbelievable wisdom for a man who came into the fullness of his life with the Holy Spirit only 12 years before he died. And then in our narcissistic society, we have a tendency regarding faith to think it's all about us. Look what he says. Am I as spontaneously kind to God as I used to be? Or am I only expecting God to be kind to me? Am I full of the little things that cheer his heart over me? Or am I whimpering because things are going hardly with me? There is no joy in a soul that has forgotten what God prizes. Think about your prayer life. How much time is spent in prayer and how much time is spent in laying your request at his feet? And once you lay his, your request at his feet, are you done? Is the conversation over? Or do you spend more time finding out what you can do to please him? I was never taught this. I, I never even had it modeled for me in church that I went to. We give him praise in the beginning. Lord, you're good and glorious and thank you for everything. Bam. Here's what we need in Jesus' name and we move on. Two more. This is the next to the best and the best is last. Here's what he says. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Nothing else. What can man do to me? Have those verses on your handout from last week. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Everything else. Because your God is so small. And when it comes to living our life as a fragrant aroma to him, how many people have you made homesick for God? Well, what does that mean? It means 
the, the, your relationship with him is so wondrous that people can't wait to die and go spend time with him. Kind of the opposite of how we think today, is it not? This is Oswald Chambers. I suggest if you don't have a copy, you go get My Utmost for as highest. You can actually read it online for free. You just go to utmost.org, put your name in there. They will send it to you every single day. They'll either have it in the old classic version, which is which I like, which is a little more difficult to read, or they give you kind of a new updated version um, and just learn some things from someone who has gone before us and still leaves writing to teach us. I was um, going to close with talking about what we're supposed to be doing regarding being a faith prepper. But I want to end by just asking you, I handed these out last week. Really simple. I went ahead and put some of my feelings on those and some of the things that God was dealing with me on those. I asked you if you would take one of those or two of those and read them and look at them and and see if you can understand what it's saying and then align your life up in such a way that we can be able to test him in his faith. And, and I was uh, hoping today, I still am, that uh, we can have just a closing time of testimony and you can kind of share with everybody what God has showed you through whatever passage you looked at, how he spoke to you, maybe some of the things that you had written so that we can all just kind of uh, grow together in him. So who would like to share? 